Hebrews 11.29. That will be our text this morning. And I appreciate the reading of the Word this morning that we had. Psalm 137 is one of those texts of scriptures that can make, make us feel uncomfortable. Well, the truth is that it is God's Word. It's God's infallible Word. It's for our instruction. It's for our edification to read even those difficult portions of Scripture. So I, I appreciate that we read it. And we also have to be reminded that we're instructed in the Scriptures that we're to be singing and greeting one another with those very Psalms that we read. And that's why we systematically read through the Psalms every Sunday morning. If you've ever wondered, why do we keep reading the Psalms? Well, we read through the Psalms because actually God's Word tells us to read through the Psalms. This morning, though, we will be in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, and we're looking at the seminal event of the Old Testament, which was the Exodus. You will see the Exodus as not only something that is repeated in terms of uh, what is accomplished, but as a wonderment for God's people throughout the Old Testament. You have the Exodus event and many things leading up to the Exodus event, beginning in in chapter 15 of Genesis, it is told that there would be an exodus that's coming. And then you see the exodus event, and then there's this continual reference back to exodus. The exodus is that event in God's history that is the most remarkable in all of the Old Testament in which he delivers the children of Israel. It is the one that is remarked by the prophets through the Psalms as that crucial moment it was a picture, though, as we should see, of a greater exodus that was to come. And that is a greater exodus in the Lord Jesus Christ, where our spiritual enemies are conquered and our slavery to sin is broken in Christ. And thus we have a second exodus that comes about in Him. And so it's no surprise then to find that the exodus is given as an example to the Hebrews in our text this morning as a means to encourage them as they're facing difficult times and possibly persecution. And this is a charge for them. It's a charge for us to remain faithful. So let us hear the word of God and let us pray that he will address this to our hearts. Hebrews 11 verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. We see really three movements in this, this morning. We see a miracle, we see judgment, and we see faith. And so we're going to look at this text according to those three things. Miracle, judgment, and faith. Beginning with the miracle, the miracle is that they crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. And this story really begins back in Exodus. And so that takes us back to Exodus. And one of the wonderful things about Hebrews chapter 11, or really the whole book of Hebrews, is it really shows us how the Scripture is to be one type unit that is all linked together. And so we see that so clearly this morning in this Exodus event. The Exodus is pretold in chapter 12 of verse 51. It says, And on that very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. 
And so the story begins as we approach the Exodus to even begin to understand the Exodus. We have to begin with what it says here in this verse is that the Exodus is by God's own leading on the day that the Lord brought them out. So before we even look at the details of the Exodus, the summary that we have to understand is every aspect of the Exodus was according to God's own sovereign leading. It is God that brought them out. It is God that led them in the way that they went. It is God that brings them to the Red Sea. It is God that splits the Red Sea. It is God's action. And as this action takes place, it's so important we see it unfolding as God's sovereign leading because as you read the route that they take in the Exodus, it doesn't make a lot of sense to human wisdom. In fact, chapter 13, verse 18 says, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And you read in a couple verses later, in verse 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so God takes them on this strange path to exit Egypt. It's not a path that we would have taken. In fact, there were shorter paths. There were paths that made better sense to human wisdom and to geography. It's a route that defies human wisdom. And and this is actually what... Pharaoh would see, he would, as he's seen Israel depart from Egypt, he would think, this doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, that's what it says in chapter 14, verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. In other words, the path that God takes them on is a path that doesn't make sense. He's taking them on a path that according to human wisdom will lead to their capture and their destruction by the Egyptian army. And so from all outward perspectives, the exodus, that is being led by God in this supernatural way of a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud is, is, is a way that would not make any sense. It's leading the people probably to wonder, where on earth is Moses taking us? Where is God taking us? We just left a clear path to our freedom, and now we're actually going to a path that's going to result in our death. And so as God is leading them out, he's leading them out in a way that does not make sense. The result of it is seen in verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they greatly feared, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So why do they have fears? Because they notice that the Egyptian army is now on them. So rather than taking a straight path, which would have taken them through Philistine country, God takes them on a path that looks like you're following a bee. It's going all over the place. 
And it's a way that would have been confusing to them. And so what happens as a result is the Egyptian army is gaining on them. It says that they feared greatly. They were greatly afraid. It's to tremble, to have a paralyzing effect on them to where they're afraid of even to move. And so now notice what happens to this fear. They have a justified fear. This army that hates them, that they have escaped, that has uh, been over their lives, that they have been subservient to for 400 years, uh, they then, they then from this fear, it turns to regret and grumbling. And I want you to notice this. God has led them on this path. God is leading them in supernatural ways. God rescued them out of Egypt through supernatural means. Where is their trust in God? You think about this as we who say that we believe in the sovereignty of God and that God has sovereign his, over all things, our life never goes how, according to how we would have planned it, does it? So that could get us to question God's sovereignty. Well, they're in a place of fear, and that fear turns to regret, that fear turns to grumbling, that fear turns to complaining against God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 14. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, I want you to note what they're saying. They believe that they're going to die. They believe that God has worked all of these supernatural events of the ten plagues, uh, gave them, uh, the Egyptians, all of their money and all of their wealth as they departed from Egypt, that God orchestrated all of this so that they're just going to die. That's what they believe. God had promised them that he would rescue them as he promised to Abraham. And they're starting to realize that rescue but because they come to an obstacle that God has put them in. They say, well, God now means to kill us. They're hemmed in by mountains on the side. The Egyptians are behind them. And then, to top it off, God leads them to a sea. And they say it would be better to be enslaved than to have experienced God's deliverance and now die here. That's, in essence, what they're saying. It would be better for us to be back in slavery than for us to have experienced what God has done to, for us thus far. It's amazing, Moses, in light of all of this, and if you study Moses, you kind of understand why he gets angry at some points. Now look at the people that he's dealing with. And as you look at the picture of Moses, it's one of calm rest. And how is that possible? Moses is there with him. The, the army's behind Moses as it is. 
He's facing the sea. He's got the mountains on his side. Moses is there with the people. How is it this possible? Well, I think the very simple answer that's not stated in the text but is evident in the life of Moses, Moses did not have his eyes on the Egyptians. Moses didn't have his eyes on the mountains. Moses didn't have his eyes upon the sea. Rather, his eyes were resting upon the invisible God that had promised to deliver them. And when his eyes are upon God, his obstacles fade away. What stands before him is no longer a hurdle, but actually is just an opportunity for God to prove himself. So what does Moses give the people? What does Moses do in this response? What what is it that calms Moses' own heart? Well, he just simply gives them the word of God. And it's a word that was promised to their forefather, Abraham. We see this word that God, or Moses, gives them that is the word of God. He says simply, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He gives them three imperatives, that is, three commands. It's fear not, it's stand firm, and then see, that is, watch what God is going to do on your behalf. And notice what he's telling them, this fear that you have, you're not to have it anymore. He's commanding them, fear not. And then he says, stand firm, don't scatter, don't run. And then this third command is watch what the Lord is going to do. Now here's why I say he has a calm rest and a calm confidence because after he tells them to fear not, stand firm, and watch what God's going to do, he then gives them three future tenses, which is this is what God is going to do. He doesn't say this is what God might do. This is what I hope God is going to do. He says this is what God will do. That's a future tense. This is what God will do. This is his absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God and God fulfilling his promises that he is given in his word. Notice what these tenses are. It says, which he will work for you today. Note what Moses says of the Lord. He will do this. And I want you to note these two words for you. He will do this for you. In other words, what he's saying to the Israelites is the circumstances which you find yourself in, from your perspective, they seem impossible. But the Lord has led you here for a reason that you cannot see. I think that that's how we should be understanding of God's sovereignty always is that oftentimes as we face difficult situations, and certainly we're not going to be facing this type of situation, but we nonetheless face difficult situations, we we know God is sovereign. And from our standpoint, oftentimes things seem impossible. But perhaps God has led you to be hemmed in by your enemies so he can work a deliverance. He says this, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And that is, again, a future tense. Why? Because they will die. 
God is going to exact his judgment upon the Egyptians. And then he gives them a final future tense. The Lord will fight for you. So there's this going to be this supernatural act on your behalf that God is going to do. God is going to do this on your behalf. That's what those two words for you indicate. This is something God is doing on your behalf. Now, did for the most part the people here trust God? No. They grumbled. They're paralyzed with fear. But look what God does in delivering them. He condescends to them and saves them. He does this, says, for you. The words for you are possibly the greatest words in Scripture. In Greek, the words for you are just one word, huper. And those are the most comforting words we will ever see because it means this, this is on your behalf. And if you look at what the text says, what is my part? Moses says, you have only to be silent. God will do this for you. My part is this, be silent. That's the absence of sound. He's telling them to keep their mouths shut. What were they doing? They were grumbling. But when God acts upon his people, our part is oftentimes remaining silent. Let me just explore a couple of these verses in the New Testament that say what God does on our behalf. I want you to hear it. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you don't need to turn there, but for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice those words, for our sake, that is, for you. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's something God does on our behalf where we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we do nothing to earn it, to gain it, or to even keep it. God does it on our behalf. Just, just as God rescued the Israelites and they did nothing, they contributed nothing to their deliverance. Notice what it says, and Jesus says in John chapter 10, we see these words again, for you. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what Jesus did on behalf of his church. This is what Jesus did on behalf of his people. Is he lays down his life. He does that for you. What do you do? There's nothing we do. Romans chapter 5, in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right hand, right time, Christ died, here it is, for the ungodly. 
This is what Christ did on your behalf. The Lord will fight for you, and he did. I'll just give you one more. There's so many that we could go to, but you get the point. In Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? The Father gives the Son on your behalf. What did you do for that? What did you do to earn that? We do nothing. God does it on your behalf. You contribute nothing to what God has accomplished in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your salvation. That is the wonderful truth of the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. Because if it was God did his part, now I've got to do my part. That's not good news. That's not comforting news. I don't have assurance in that news. That's just simply news that, okay, I have to work to earn my salvation and get God to do something for me. Salvation at that point is no longer by grace, just as the exodus would have been earned by them. And so what do the Israelites do to split the sea? What do the Israelites do to have God stand in front of them with a pillar of fire and then behind them with a a pillar of cloud? What do they do to do that? God just asks them to keep their mouths shut. That's all he asks of them. And so what happens as God leads the children of Israel and it says that he is going to fight for them? Well, we come to Moses is instructed to raise his staff in Exodus 14, verse 16. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And there you see the miracle. Not only is the sea going to be split, but the ground that they walk on is going to be dry. Now even when you see low tide and you see it receding, you still see the ground remains wet for a period of time and just naturally seen it. So a lot of commentators that are more of uh, rationalistic commentators of the, uh, the 19th and 18th centuries would begin to say, well, there was some sort of large wind that blew back the water just enough for them to be able to walk across and they were, they were able to get across. Well, that doesn't account for the dry land. You see, the text doesn't allow that. The text actually teaches us this is a supernatural act of God in, in which there would have been these walls of water on either side. And you can think of Cecil B. DeMille's uh, the, the Ten Commandments and, and how the big well, the waters split apart and they're walking through that. If that kind of gives you an idea what it would have looked like, but this was an incredible miracle that God wrought against nature. I was working above and around nature. The laws of nature are thrown out in many ways. 
And not only does God dry the land so that they can comfortably walk, and this is in, in, at night, he gives them the miracle of protection. We see in verse 19, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. It's amazing that God showed himself not only as a guide for the people, that he would lead them on this way, but then he hymns them in with protection and places himself between his children and the Egyptians. He, he gives them a, a security and protection in really the most frightful moment that they could have faced. If you imagine being claustrophobic. Well, walk between two large walls of water with an army behind you. That might make you claustrophobic. But God offers his protection in a supernatural way in which they needed. What did we read of them? They were fearful. And so God, once again, condescends and helps them out not only to protect them, to give them dry land, but then he also abates their fear by protecting them. This is the miracle that is mentioned. But then we see the judgment. It says the Egyptians then drowned. And the text in Hebrews is very vivid in what it says. It says, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So God saves his people in this, but he then at the same time, and in, in this judgment or deliverance of his people, he judges the wicked. And it begins in a process, and back in Exodus 14 it says, And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Now, when we see that idea of God looking down, that's just language to help us picture what's taking place, is that God, by gazing upon them, it's not as if God had eyes and is looking now upon them. It is simply just to communicate. God has turned his attention now to the Egyptians, and he is going to go after them. And so he throws them into a panic. In verse 25, it says, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Well, hold on. What, was, what, what were we told about the land as they, were drive, as they were walking through? Well, it was dry. And so I don't, I don't know how to explain what's taking place with their wheels now becoming clogged in dry land. But it was apparently dry for Israel. And then it wasn't here for Egypt. So it says, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. At this moment, they acknowledge what's taking place. And the fear that had struck the Israelites now is the very fear that comes back upon the Egyptians, the enemies of God, but tenfold. 
And the result of it is obvious. In verse 27, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Just as the Lord had led Israel, he was sovereign over all of this. He's sovereign in his judgment that it is God himself that throws the Egyptians into the sea so that they would drown. It says in verse 28, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh, and that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. They are drowned. Now before we, we feel sorry for the Egyptians, remember that they had enslaved the people. They had treated them harshly. They rejected the one true God. They worshipped false gods. God is perfectly just in this, and the Lord himself exacts vengeance upon the Egyptians. Let's go back to the Hebrews for a moment. The Hebrews had faced persecution. And they're looking to face persecution again. What do we see that God does with those that persecute the church? You know, we're told by Paul, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We oftentimes want to take vengeance into our own hands. Whether we're personally insulted or we're treated wrongly, we want to take vengeance. If it's, we have an attitude of vengeance oftentimes with, well, you think about the Hebrews that were facing persecution. Here's why we should listen to what God says when he says, never avenge yourselves. Just imagine for a second, had Moses led a revolt, what would have the cost been? Well, it would have either been, it would have either been defeat or victory, right? That would have been the cost, either defeat or victory. But in defeat, you obviously lose a lot. But don't you lose a lot in victory as well? There's never been a war won without a loss of life. There's always a great cost, even when there's victory. And so what we see, what does this cost the Israelites? This is all it costs the Israelites. Keep your mouth shut. And then sometimes that's harder to do than anything, isn't it? Be silent long enough for God to deliver you. And so we have to know what Hebrews states here about this. The Egyptians are judged. But notice what it says, and this is particularly insightful for us. It says, but the Egyptians, when they attempted, they drowned. So in other words, the Egyptians are attempting to do what Israel is doing. And so we know that they were judged and they drowned, that's clear. We know that it was part of God's eternal plan that was revealed to Abraham. We, we know that, that God had told Abraham, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. So this was already stated hundreds of years before it happened. But we have to see something else in this. They attempted to do what the Israelites had done. They attempted to go against God's word. That's what we need to read there. 
The Egyptians rush into the sea with no word of God directing them to do so. We should not read this simply as soldiers doing soldier stuff and following all orders. What we rather should see is they are shunning God's ten warnings in the plagues. God had revealed himself to the Egyptians through ten plagues, giving them warnings, saying, let my people go. So what they're doing, in essence, is they are challenging God. They are shunning a supernatural act of which they had already seen ten previously. They're shunning God's supernatural preservation of Israel, and they're shunning his word. And to shun God's word in this manner and then to test God is to openly challenge God. So when we read of the Egyptians going through the sea, again, don't mock that off as they're just following orders. What you have to see is they're openly challenging God. Now you might think, How could they be held accountable to God if they did not actually know his word? Well, they they actually did. They actually did know his word. They saw it through the ten plagues. They saw it through the fact of of, uh, this opening of the Red Sea and God's supernatural protection over them. We have to also recognize this, is that God is the creator and we are the creation. God has the right to do what he will do. And as creator, he will keep every single individual accountable. We are responsible whether we know it or not. And God's law that is written upon every single heart throughout every single civilization actually is what is going to testify against us. We know that in our heart, God created the world. And Paul says even his invisible attributes are clearly known. But people hold them in untruth. That's saying that they actually know it, but they discount it. And so we actually are held responsible. These Egyptians are held responsible not only for the special light that they had of God's, of, of God's um, word in the, in the plagues, in the judgment, but they also, by just knowing that they were created by a God. And here's what we have to understand about this. We see what they're doing is openly challenging God in a very direct manner. The Egyptians are very direct in this. Pharaoh particularly is very, very direct. And we might think, what a horrible sin to openly challenge God like that, right? Well, actually, anytime we choose our own route to sin rather than listen to God's word, we rush headlong into the Red Sea to be drowned in a sorrow of sinful behavior. So, in other words, anytime we hear God's word and we say, I'll do what I want to do instead, what what we in essence have done is the same thing the Egyptians have done, and we have rushed into the Red Sea only to be drowned. Anytime we challenge God's word, we're shunning God's word. We're saying, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I know how to run my life better than you do. 
And so anytime we rush into some sort of sinful behavior, we're actually challenging God's authority. We're shunning his mercy and his grace. We are rejecting his word, and we're saying, well, that could apply to someone else, but it doesn't apply to me. And so in essence, when we do that, we are following the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were marching to their death. Let us not march to our death. Let us always embrace what God's Word says for our life, even when it's difficult to do. Let let our confidence be there in God's Word. Now, the Israelites went through on dry land. They were safe. And how did this come about? Well, it says by faith they did this. Now, right here, we encounter a difficulty of the text of Hebrews. In fact, I think this, in this chapter, might want to be one of the, the most difficult portions of it. And here's what I mean by the difficulty of the text here, and this idea of faith. By faith, the people cross the Red Sea as on dry ground. Now, as we've looked through all of chapter 11, it lists those that have true saving faith, and then when it says by faith, that they did something, it's speaking of the fruit of their faith. So as we see that they're doing something, we're seeing the fruit of their faith, and that's an example for us. But when we read this and we read, okay, verse 29, by faith, the people, that's the fruit of faith, so that must mean that they were all truly saved. Well, then what do we do with Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, where it says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So Hebrews 3, 18 and 19 actually speaks of this generation and says they didn't have faith. And then Hebrews 11 says, By faith they did this. So what's going on? Notice what Moses says about these people as one who who walked with them and and led them those 40 years in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, we read, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. So God's word says this was a group that was characterized by unbelief. Moses says they're a perverse generation in whom there's no faithfulness. So how do we square this with our text that says, by faith they cross through the Red Sea? Well, one thing is, is you have to note, it, the text does not say Israel crossed through the Red Sea which would indicate a nation of people crossing through the Red Sea, which a nation of people did. Israel did cross through the Red Sea. But the text doesn't say that. The text says the people. It says, by faith, the people. In other words, as we should read this, there was a mixed crowd. In fact, the text of, in Exodus eventually says there was a mixed group. Some believe that even in that mixed group were, might have been some Egyptians that decided to go with them. 
And so what we see in the Red Sea, in the crossing of the Red Sea, is they were faithful and they were unfaithful. We have to acknowledge this. Moses was going through the Red Sea. There has to be at least one faithful person there. I get it. You can make some questions about Aaron. He's not in our faith of fa list of faithful. So there's at least one faithful person there. So there was a mixture of at least one faithful person, but then you have Joshua and Caleb. Now you have people that are faithful throughout this, but you also have those that are unfaithful. And so there's actually a distinction made in the text of Exodus itself of this in chapter 14 of Exodus in verse 31 you see similar language to that of Hebrews where we read this, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So Israel is identified, then it goes on, so the people, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. A distinction is made between that of Israel and that of the people, those that did have faith. So some of them certainly did have faith. Some of them did not have faith. We read this in 1 Corinthians 10.5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Notice the phrase, most of them. Sometimes if you read the Old Testament, you wonder, is anyone saved outside of Abraham and David? Well, the text of Scripture actually says, with most of them, God was not pleased. God was not pleased with them. So how is it then that all of them go through? Well, there's a couple things that we have to recognize. Is There can be momentary faith in people, right? There can be a person that shows momentary faith. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the seeds, is that some seeds are planted and sprout up and then are quickly drenched. So there can be this momentary faith, someone expresses faith, but it's not a true possession of faith. It's just a simple expression of it. There can be the presumption of faith where one thinks they have a faith. This is why Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, that means that person thought they had faith. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will I say that I knew you, but Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. And then also we just know human nature, right? Some people just simply follow the crowd. In fact, that, you know, there's been massive experiments that have been done to show how people will follow a crowd. And they're frightened, and of course they will. I was reading in Psychology Today magazine where it said this, in his book, Influence, the name of the book is Influence, Robert Cardini uses the example of advertisers informing us that a product is the fastest growing or best selling. Advertisers don't have to persuade us that a product is good. They only need to say others think it's good. That's, that's kind of how we act. If we see something that has a lot of excitement, we don't oftentimes question it. That's just human nature. That's why we're, we're called sheep, right? We just simply follow. It's funny that advertisers pick up on this. They don't have to convince us that a product's good. They just have to say everyone's buying it, and then what do we do? 
We buy it. Well, a lot of the people saw that the children of Israel were going in, and they just simply followed it. So you could have people that, that have momentary faith, you can have the presumption of faith, and you can have those people that just simply followed the crowd. And so you have a mixture of people. There was a mixture. And that's one thing that we have to understand clearly about the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant always contained a mixture. That is the difference between the covenants. The New Covenant says they will know God. They will be forgiven of their iniquity. In the New Covenant, there's not a mixture of sheep and goats. Now, the invisible church only is infallibly known by God, and that is what is without mixture, though you may have in a local congregation saved and unsaved. But the invisible church, that church that's only known by God, is not mixed. It is not mixed. And that is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We have to also know something about this faith. Those that have a true saving faith and those that had a true saving faith like Moses still had an imperfect faith. <laughs> Did Moses always fully trust God's word? No, that's why he was not able to see the promised land. But did Moses still in faith, even with a weak faith, act upon God's word? Yes. That is something we need to know about faith. This is why we see the apostles state, increase our faith. This is why, and this is repeated over and over again, when we have assurance of salvation, it's not because we rest in our faith. We don't rest in a supposed prayer we might have said one time. We don't rest in walking an aisle. We don't rest in any act that we do. Because as soon as we do, we're resting in something that is weak and fallible. We rest in the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where our assurance is. But we also want to pray with the apostles, increase our faith. Let our faith grow. There's something that we need to walk away from this morning, from this text, and the first is this, rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. Followers of Christ... If you're a follower of Christ this morning, you may rest in God's sovereignty. When we have enemies at our back and mountains at our sides and a sea before us, rest in God who put you there. And that's the key. It's not an accident that we face the trials and tribulations we face in this life. God put you there for your good. God orchestrated the entire arrangement. When we face difficulties or challenges to our faith, be reminded Christ has promised to never, ever abandon or forsake us. And then finally, we can draw great comfort from the Exodus in the fact that in the future, we will sing the song of Moses. Revelation 15 
verses 2 through 4 says this, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What a wonderful truth that we will join the chorus for all of eternity singing the song of Moses in which God delivered his people from their enemies. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ our greatest enemy, death, sin, has been conquered in him, that our great King our high priest and our prophet has conquered death, that we may rejoice with the saints of old, saying, O death, where is your sting? Father, we are so grateful to know that sin has been conquered even in our own lives, even now, that we're no longer enslaved to it, but that in Christ we have received a greater exodus. I pray, Father, this will encourage our hearts I pray that, Father, this would be what keeps us edified and strengthened as we do face the difficulties of this life. We pray your grace and your help. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand.